All right, 27, verse 46. Let me start there if I can, which is really um, kind of, you know, chapter breaks in the Bible were added much, 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 much later. So there's always a change, challenge. Is this a false chapter break? Because it does seem to conclude the material on uh, Jacob's uh, chicanery and his deception and all that he did. But it says something, again, about his mother, but it is clearly she's got Esau in mind. I loathe my life. I'm in verse 46. This is Rebecca talking. Because of the Hittite women. Now, notice that's plural. Now, why does that bring to our mind Esau? That was not a rhetorical question. Do you remember? Well, he married two his. That's correct. That's correct. He had married, he, Esau, had married several couple, two Hittite women. And remember, they're Canaanites. They are not. Jews, they are not in any way related to the covenant. So then she concludes, if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life to be uh, to me be? So, I mean, she's lamenting, she's concerned, and obviously because Jacob has left her because of the threat to his life from Esau, And all that is a part of the context. You see the depths of her despair. As we said last night, her duplicity, uh, her deceptiveness, and Jacob was totally complicit in this. It's bearing its fruit now. And so her concern is that he will not marry a Hittite woman, a Canaanite. And her hope is that he will marry, of course, someone from her family. Uh, that is her extended family, which is why he's headed up north. So you, I think it's it's hard to know why why would Moses te- Moses is writing this? Why would Moses tell us this? What's the importance of this? And it's a little curious, but it certainly is indicating the despair of this woman, Rebecca, and it's certainly indicating the the very difficult situation, the potential threat to the covenant line. Do you follow what I mean by that? Because Jacob is, Jacob, this is very clear from the text, Jacob is the covenant son. It will be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That It's not going to be Abraham, Isaac, Esau. It's never going to be Esau. So there is that in her mind, there is that Perhaps distant, perhaps it's much closer and more real. My, my, what if he marries a Hittite? What if on his way it's a 600-mile trip? What if he stops and spends time with a Hittite? I mean, he's just, she's just imagining all these scenarios that could happen. So it's very personal to her. She's his mother. Remember, Jacob's the favorite son of her. So it's just telling us this haunting, difficult wrenching situation that exists because of what has had to happen. Because of her duplicity and her deceitfulness and this plot that she hatched, she's lost her son. 
As I suggested to you last week, there is no evidence from the scriptures that she ever saw Jacob again. By the time he comes back into the land, every indication is she's dead. So, I mean, this is a, this is a hard moment for her. I mean, I, I don't know how else to think about that. Now, chapter 28 is a, is a very, very, very important chapter. The, uh, who's, yes. Yes. Is it, is it also possible that she's she's fearful of her position with God because she has interfered with um, with His plan and or tried to interfere with His plan? I'm not sure what you mean by her position with God. Um, in a very real sense, I think we could conclude at least for now that her relationship with God is not very close. I mean, she has done things that uh, that would not have been pleasing to the Lord. So uh, if if that is, and I'm, I'm just trying to get back of all you're asking in terms of your question, uh, I think if that is part of how, yes, I think that's a part of it too. I mean, this, Rebecca, Rebecca is feeling, there's emotion in, in these words of verse 46, she is feeling all that goes with the results of of sin. She has done very, um, very deceitful things here. She has betrayed her husband. She's betrayed her. I mean, and it's we talked about that the other week. She's bought that end justifies the means ethic. I'm putting a 21st century spin on something like this, but she really is. She knows the end. She knows that. God told her that. Your secondborn is going to rule over the firstborn. Your secondborn is the covenant. So she knows that. God told her that. Because remember, there are, two, there are two babies in her womb, and they're fighting it out. You know, there's really strong Hebrew language there. And, and she says, Lord, what is going on? Remember the oracle he tells her. So she knows that her her favorite, Jacob, is to be the covenant. But she is like Frank Sinatra. She's going to do it her way. And now she is living with all of the emotion and consequences that result from that of what she did. She's had to send Jacob away. And you kind of think, well, how did you think Esau would react to this? Do you think he would say, it's all right, Jacob. You stole it all from it. It's okay. We're still good brothers. Mom, it's fine. You know, you kind of go, what planet is she living on that she would think that Esau is not going to say, I am going to kill my brother. When Isaac dies, I'm going to kill him. Remember, that's what, that's what he had said. So she's just now dealing with the consequences. The literal consequence, she's lost her son. He's going to be 600 miles away from me. And then the emotion, oh my, I think, what if on the way he stops and falls in love with a Hittite woman or starts having sexual relations with her and they get connected and they get married? Then, oh my goodness. I mean, it's just, it's, it's haunting. It's, it's horrible. She's living the consequences of what she had chosen. Isn't it sort of like a two-edged sword? The closer we draw to God, the more accountability we have in a sense 
of because of that closeness and that clarity of his communication with us through his word through the Holy Spirit through other means other people that are brought into our lives that we will if we turn from that we will find oftentimes great despair yeah yeah I think so I mean this is true in my life. I've walked with the Lord since 1972, and my walk with the Lord is is deeper and, and more meaningful than it's ever been, but yet the things that I'm very aware of now that are displeasing to the Lord, I was not aware of, and I didn't think God would be displeased in 1972. Now it's things like my motives and my attitudes and Peggy tells me, Jim, you got to smile more. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to be happy and representing the Lord, smiling and walking. Because I'm thinking through things, I mean, I'm concentrating. And I can't, you know, I can't walk and chew gum. So I can't concentrate and think and meditate and smile at the same time. So I just say, well, honey, people have got to understand. She's, no, honey, that's not how people are going to look. They want to see you smile. You know, I'm just kidding you. But it's those kinds of things. But for her... She is an incredibly privileged woman. She had been chosen by God to be the wife of a covenant leader, Isaac. But like all of us, she had the weaknesses that glaringly come to the surface with what happens with Jacob. So what happens to Jacob? Verse 1 then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from a Canaanite woman. Arise, go to Padamaram. Now in the map that I gave you, we, we looked at this before, but Padamaram is also called Haran. That's the old hometown of Abraham's family before they moved down to Ur. This goes way back. This was the area where Rebekah was from because Eliezer, the servant, God had directed him up there, and that's where Rebecca was from. So that's all that's all it's saying. So that shouldn't be new to you. To the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And we had we had met Laban earlier, back in several chapters earlier, when Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, gone up to get Rebecca and so on. And so, again, what you see is Isaac, now the father, he's, he's blind, he's old, he's sick. He blesses, he blesses Jacob again and just says, you got to get out of here. Mom has told me what the situation is, and his only caution is, don't take a Canaanite wife. <clears throat> I got a little confused on this, because uh, I read it for studying it. I, I get confused a lot, but anyway, anyway, I was thinking Laban was Rebecca's brother, but he's the it, brother of the mother. Yeah, it's his, it's her uncle. That's right. It's her uncle. Yeah. That's all right. Believe me, Woody, you're not the only one that gets confused in studying the Bible. You're just one of the few that admits it, so I'm <laughs> glad you do that. Verse 3, God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful, multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. What's he doing? He's summarizing the covenant promise there. Verse 4, may you give give the blessing of Abram and to you and your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. 
Again, I mean, verse 3, verse 4, what Isaac is doing is summarizing the Abrahamic covenant. Very clear. He understands. Jacob is going to get the covenant, is inherit, be a part of the covenant line. So, I mean, and that had been promised, good night when they were born, that Jacob would be the one. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padamaram, and to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padamaram to take a wife from there. That is, he blessed him as he directed him. You must not take a wife from a Canaanite woman. And Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padamaram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abram's son, the sister of Nabiot. Now that's an interesting piece of information. Esau was his father's favorite son. Esau sought to please his father. So what does Esau do to please his father? Doesn't get rid of his Hittite wives, but he takes another wife in the line of Ishmael. You follow me? So it's just an interesting, sort of fascinating piece of information. He's still trying to please his father. And it's just, to me, it's quite revealing. He doesn't get rid of his Hittite wives, his Canaanite wives, but he takes another wife that is one of the descendants of Abraham from Ishmael. It's just really... So what do we do with that information? I'm not sure, except here again, the favorite son of Isaac is trying to please his dad. I heard what he said to Jacob, the brother I now hate, that I still want the affection of my dad. So I'm going to do that. All right, now. Line. That's correct. Ishmael is not the covenant line. That's correct. Back the line. That, that, that is correct. Now, Jacob's dream is theologically one of the most important before, dreams. Before we get the, there, could, could we back up just a minute? Um, yeah. I'm, I'm confused. Um, because I could, Isaac tells Jacob to go to Padam Aram, or Aram, whatever it yeah. is, mm-hmm. to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel, and then take for yourself among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So Laban is not Rebekah's uncle, if, if I understood you to say that. It's your mother's brother. So it's your mother's brother. You're going to the family of your mother's brother, of which Laban is a part. Yeah. He is the he is an uncle. It is complicated. I know. I mean, all these relationships of these extended families in the Old Testament. Well, but he's Laban is Rebecca's brother. Laban is Rebecca's uncle. She is going to the extended family of Rebecca her brother's extended family, of which Laban is a part of that extended family, who is her uncle. 
I, I know it, it, it's the way in which we group all those prepositional phrases. Yeah. So, um, and, and the other question is um, where he's going. Right. Is that part of the land that was given to, to, um, to Abraham? Abraham? The extent. Actually, that's a great question, John. It actually is just a little bit north of that land. Okay. Because what God said to Abraham when he kind of gave him the boundaries, the Euphrates River is the eastern boundary. And Padamaran, Haran, is a little bit to the north of the Euphrates. So, so it would be outside of that covenant promise. So then land. when he says, uh, so that you can take possession of the land. He's not talking about that. He's talking about yeah, he's the promise. He's going to come back and take possession that's of correct. Right that's now. correct. That's okay. correct. And that's why when we get to Genesis 32, he will go back. He, okay. Jacob, will go back to the land. He is outside of the covenant land here. That, that's right. Okay. Now this is the famous... Um, narrative of the ladder between earth and heaven. And Jesus refers to this in John chapter 1, verse 51. And he says, I was involved in this. This is Jesus speaking. I was there. I was a part of this. So that is again another affirmation of the deity of Jesus. I'm just saying, I'm not going to elaborate on that, but I mean, if you're really interested, go back to the end of chapter one of the Gospel of John and just see it. Jesus is, Jesus is saying something that was really rather remarkable because he is referring to this event of, of Jacob's life. Now, why does God do this? Why, why does God reveal himself? Because it's a ladder or uh, steps, it's kind of a difficult Hebrew word there, but whatever, it's connecting earth and heaven, and standing at the top of the ladder is Yahweh. And here's Jacob and their angels. Why does he do that? He meaning God. Because you have to remember where Jacob is now in his life. Number one, he's alone. Number two, he's somewhat of a vagabond and a, uh, an outcast. He's left everything he knows, and he's just, you have to imagine that he is thinking, are the promises that my father just reviewed to me before I left home real? Am I truly the covenant son? Is truly God going to bless me the way my father said he would bless me? Because after all, I'm deceitful. I'm duplicitous. I do things my way. So what is settling into Jacob's heart is the realization of who he really is. You follow me? So what God is going to do here in, in verse 10 and following is one of the most amazing profound examples of God's grace in the life of Jacob. Now, God is going to break Jacob like taking a big watermelon and dropping it on a slab of concrete. That's going to happen in chapter 20, 32. 
But God does not want Jacob to forget that he is the covenant son. That he is the one who will inherit the threefold blessing and will be in the covenant line. And he does it in a really remarkable way. Jacob left Beersheba. Remember that was where the whole Abrahamic clan had lived. That's where Isaac and so on. And went to Haran, another name for Patamaram. That's a 600-mile trip. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night before the sun was set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. I'm always a bit astonished at that because there are a lot of things I'd get for a pillow, but a stone <laughs> would not be one of them. I mean, you know, just, but we're used to the soft, luxurious pillows, you know. That. But anyway. Thank you for that. That's good. That's really good. Boy, you and Joe are just filled with them today. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Joe edited it. <clears throat> Verse 12. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder. That is a very difficult Hebrew term. It could mean steps, it could be an escalator. It's not an elevator. No, I'm, I'm, I'm making some puns there. But anyway, but it like steps are a ladder. <clears throat> Notice the language. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And I, I don't know any, any other way to take that and take it literally. You just have angels moving up and down the steps, ladders. That's a remarkable, quite astonishing dream to try to picture in your mind. Here's what's really important. Behold, the Lord stood above it. Some, some translations have the Lord stood beside him. And, and Lord there is, is Yahweh. This is the one who revealed the covenant to Abraham, etc., etc. So the same God that had appeared to Abraham, the same God that had appeared to Isaac, is now the God who's appearing to Jacob. And he said, this is God speaking, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. And there again is the way in which in the ancient world, I mean, technically, Abraham is not his father. He's his grandfather. But that is often the way in, in, in the language of the, of the scriptures, it's really the language of the ancient world, you are the father of the founder of your family. So it could be 19 generations, but you're still the father of. That's why Jesus is called the son of David. It's a thousand years separated David and Jesus because the important thing is he's in the royal line. Well, that's all, I just want to make sure you didn't stumble over that. Verse, uh, where am I? The middle of verse 13. Okay, now... So Jacob, it's it's just a it's it's a very difficult dream to try to imagine in our mind's eye what this looked like, but there is no question this is about Yahweh speaking directly to Jacob. Now notice the language: the land which you lie on, I will give to you and your offspring. Is that new truth? No. 
That's the same thing he said to Abraham. He first said it in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. I will give you land, the land of the Canaanites. I mean, God just keeps repeating it, repeating it later on in another one of the revelations. We studied this already. But another one of the revelations, that's what John's question was about. God even explained to him the boundaries of all the land. They're pretty significant boundaries, much, much larger than the modern-day state of Israel. So all he's doing is he's repeating. But see, what he's doing is he's now personalizing it. Jacob, I understand you're a rogue, you're duplicitous, you're deceitful, you're a sinner, you don't deserve this. I should annihilate you, I should wipe you out, but you are the covenant son. I promised your mother, I promised your father, I've made the promise to you, now I'm telling you, you and your offspring will get this land. That was important for Jacob to hear that. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the east, to the west, to the north, and the south. Okay, that's exactly what God said to Abraham. It's exactly what God said to, to Isaac. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the dust of, or the sand of the seashore. And then he adds, and your offspring, and th- and your offspring shall all through your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. Same thing he said to Abraham. As I mentioned each time we come across this, I mentioned that in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul picks up on this and says the blessing is the blessing of salvation, justification by faith. So all God is doing here is renewing the covenant and this time personalizing it with the next generation, Jacob. So it's... It's, it's, it, again, there's only one word you can write across this. Grace. Jacob did not deserve this. Jacob did not merit this. Jacob did not earn this. But God made a promise. And God is now fulfilling that promise. You say, wait a minute, Isn't, is God is overlooking everything about Jacobson? No, he's not overlooking it. He is going to deal with it. And step number one in dealing with it is he is going to put Jacob in a relationship for 14 years with a man no, more duplicitous, more deceitful than he is. Laban is going to trick uh, Jacob into serving him for 14 years and on the wedding night, he's got, first wedding night, he's going to wake up and take off the veil and find out it's Leah, not Rachel. And he runs out of the tent and said, you have betrayed me. And when we get to that, it's really interesting. Because Laban will use the three key words that evidence the duplicity of Jacob. We'll get to that. And then God's not done. So God's keeping the promise. Jacob's going to get it. But then stage two of God dealing with Jacob, he's going to smash him. Jacob is going to fight with God. He's going to wrestle with the second person of the Trinity. 
and he's going to lose. Wouldn't it be unusual if he won? But he's going to lose, and God's going to cripple him, and he's going to limp into the promised land. So, I mean, God is not disallowing, ignoring, or overlooking Jacob's sin. But he made a promise. And God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He never goes back on a promise. And the only explanation for this in Jacob's life is grace. There's no other explanation for it. Okay? Um, Isn't he, however, also putting some responsibility on Jacob? Oh, heavens. Because he, in verse 14... And in thee and thy seed shall all the families, not just your family, all the families on earth be blessed. That's my translation. Well, I'm not sure at this, I mean, that is absolutely true. The responsibility is on Jacob to carry out these promises. But I'm not sure I see it right here at this verse. So, I mean... Well, I don't know. Read that again, because I still am not seeing what you're seeing with those words. But it says, "And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed." That's just a declarative statement. It's just declaring it. It's not a conditional, unless I'm yeah, missing I see something. What you're saying. It's just but, a. De- it's God just declaring something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now, the, some of the things that God, that's coming up in Jacob's life, which is what God wants to deal with him, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So, all of the families of the earth, that would mean the covenant and the non-covenant family. That's correct. So, it's, and then that would be Jesus Christ, the, the eventual, the eventual right? Absolutely. I, and, As the salvation of for, for the world. Yes. The one thing that I see it doesn't address is that the salvation is a gift that we have to accept. And, and it can't be bought. It can't, it's something we have to accept. And we have to humble ourselves to accept that gift. And, then, and that, that part is really a here that comes in the New Testament. Well, that is a great question, a great observation. One of the. Um, That's the white word I should use here. One of the um, principles of of God's word is God keeps progressively revealing more and more and more of what he's doing. All he's doing here is stating the promise. It's it's vague. What what do you mean all the nations of the world will be blessed? What do you mean by that? Everybody's going to have a big car? Everybody, you know, is that what he means? And, you know, well, probably not. But what does he mean? That's why it's going to be. It's going to be more. It's being become more and more clear as we move through Scripture. That's why I said a moment ago the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Galatians three, and makes it very clear that this is salvation based on by grace through faith. You're right. At this point, we don't understand what that means. We don't, in other words, we don't understand the content exactly and nature exactly of the blessing, but we know the promise. I want you to notice something else, though. Again, this is equally 
remarkable. It's, it's, it's almost, it's almost, it almost catches you off guard. The extent of what God is saying to this man. He goes on in verse 15. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. What's the takeaway from that verse? What God promised will happen. Bank on it. Don't doubt me. Don't think I'm going to renege on this. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of you. And everything I promise to you, I'm going to make sure it happens. Has God made a similar promise to you? Absolutely he has. Jesus said to you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus said that to you. It's in the New Testament. And I, I will keep every promise I made to you. Bank on it. If you want some certainty about that, look at all the promises of the Old Testament that were fulfilled. Did I keep my promises to Abraham? Yes. Did I keep my promises to Isaac? Yes. Did I keep my promises to Jacob? Despite all that he did. Yes. Did I keep my promises to Judah, one of the 12 sons, despite what he did in that sexually immoral situation that he was in? Yes. Did I keep my promises to David despite his adultery and murder of a woman's husband? Yes. I mean, you should go on and on and on. So here you are doing a lot of nefarious things in your life, but you're saved by God's grace, and you say, oh, my. Jesus said, I will never leave me. He will never leave me or forsake me. I am like a sheep. He's my good shepherd. He knows my name. I know his voice. He knows my voice. He promised he's going to come back. From, I could have gone on and on and on. Is he going to keep those promises to me? Yes. That's just, it's really, it's a very, very important part of this dream closing itself out. God just said, hey, Jacob, despite, hey, Jake, no, hey, Jacob, whatever your doubts are, get them resolved because I'll be with you. I'll keep you. I'm going to bring you back to the land, and every promise I made to you, I'm going to keep it. Bank on it. He was assuring him. He's what? Assuring him. Assuring him. Powerful verse of assurance. Absolutely. Basically, he says you can't get rid of me. <laughs> yes, yeah, in, in a way, in, in a way. Listen, and this is, I use this phrase quite a bit. I think it's accurate. God's, God's grace is relentless. It, it, God's grace is relentless. His relentless pursuit of the unbeliever, it is relentless. He, I mean, I, and I, I hope you understand the spirit in which I mean that. He is constantly giving people opportunities to respond to his grace. And for those of us who have made that decision of faith, his grace is relentless in our lives. Every day is a new day. He just showers abundantly his grace upon us. We deserve nothing. He offers us everything. I think Spurgeon refers to the hound of heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
you know, he doesn't he doesn't let us go, even though yeah. we're discouraged and we feel like we are not worthy. And certainly, I think if we admit true, we are not worthy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, it, but that, that's why it keeps coming back to grace. I'm not worth it, but that's beside the point from God's perspective. You're not worth it. That's why I sent Jesus. Would you get beyond that? And it's just and it's a constant, magnificent wonder of a God who loves me so much and is willing to do all he did for me so that what was lost in Adam can be restored in Jesus. That's our God. Verse 16, then Jacob awoke and said, this is a, it's almost like an understatement, but it surely Yahweh is in this place. And I did not know it. You know, it's like, okay. Because, I mean, he, he woke up from the dream. Verse 17, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Something unexpected phrases there, house of God. He will call, I don't have a board here, but he will name this place Beth-el, Beth-el, which in Hebrew means the house of God. There's a city in the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, one of the key cities, Bethsaida, Beit Seda, the house of the fishermen. It was a major fishing village. Peter and Andrew were from that. There is a major city, Beit Lahem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. So, I mean, that... Whenever you see bait, B-E-T, that's house, and then you see what the suffix is, you can figure out what the word means pretty easily. So Jacob will name this place, which is a really because the town that's close by, you'll read that a little bit later on, is Luz, which was a major Canaanite sanctuary place. And there's some irony there, isn't there? That God chooses to have Jacob lie down and sleep on a stone, lay down and sleep and had this remarkable dream not very far from one of the major Canaanite sanctuaries. And Jacob will rename the place Beit El, the house of God. This is, just look for these very important signposts of these great saints recognizing a very significant event and changing the name of something. Now, I only got about 10 minutes here, but I want to give you the overview of what's in 18 through 22. Because 18 through 22 is Jacob's response to this. Very, very important event in his life. There's a response of worship, verse 18. There's a response of a commemoration in verse 19. And there's a response of dedication in verses 20 through 22. Let's look at each one. First, the response of worship. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar. Now, that, I mean, that's not hard. I mean, just sits on an end, so it's like this. That's all it means. What's he doing? This is now a memorial. 
The Old Testament is all about memorials. The New Testament is all about memorials. So every time you see that, it reminds you of what happened there. What's the most significant memorial for the Church of Jesus Christ? The cross. How about the Lord's table? That's a memorial. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you take a communion, you're to think of what Jesus did for you. It's to remind you. It's a memorial. It's an object lesson. And so it's a memorial, and what does he do? It's, this is very, you and I wouldn't think of doing this, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, this is very poured oil over it on top of it. So you have this thing. He sets it up like this, and he pours oil, more than likely olive oil, over it. What's that mean? It's worship. You're giving a gift to the Lord. I mean, David will do this. Um, I mean, it's just, it's part of, it will later when the whole worship system is instituted in ancient Israel with the law and everything, they'll talk about oblations where you pour oil on the altar. I mean, it's just, they always say it's, it's a dedication. I'm dedicating this as a memorial to God. I mean, it's hard for you and me because we don't have anything quite like this, but you and I are into memorials. We think of memorials. We just had the 9-11, and the, the site down there in Lower Manhattan, that, that, that enormous Liberty Tower building plus the, the fountains, I don't know if you've ever seen the water, that's a memorial. What is that to do? It's to cause you to think of what happened on 9-11 15 years ago, but also what's happened since then. <clears throat> you know, we, we have memorials that are associated with the founding of our nation, like the Liberty Bell, the Betsy Ross's house in Philadelphia, the flag, I mean, they're all, we live with memorials. That's all Jacob's doing here. I don't want to forget what happened here. And the second thing he does is commemoration. He called the name of that place Beit El, Bethel. He names it. He commemorates it. And by the way, you will see, well, we, we won't get too much in it in the book of Genesis, but Bethel is going to become one of the most important cities in ancient Israel. It's going to be a major worship center before Jerusalem is built. So, I mean, it's just very significant. It's important for the rest of the scriptures. And as I mentioned just a little bit ago, the name of the city was Luz at first, L-U-Z. There's been a lot of archaeology done in that area, a lot of stuff that's been going on. And they've, they've reached the conclusion this was a L-U-Z, was a major Canaanite sanctuary site. So God, it's a polemic. God is showing victory. This is mine. This isn't Baal's. This is mine. And he establishes, in effect, by this name, this belongs to God. Now the third, maybe we will get this done. That's amazing. Then the third point is kind of a, a little bit longer, but a dedication of this. So it's a memorial, uh, dedication. It's commemoration, change the name of the place, and then kind of a dedication. And Jacob made a vow. Now, a vow is something that, again, I mean, we do it today, but this is, this is a very religious and, and theological dimension to this. This is a vow to God. This is a promise to God. This is a commitment to God. 
Since God will be with me and keep me in this way, I will go and give me the bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. It's a, an if-then, it, uh, but it's, it, the, the problem with that is when you and I think if-then, we think, well, if this doesn't happen, then I ain't doing this. That's not the way to understand this structure in the Hebrew language. It's like, since God has said all this to me, then Yahweh shall be my God. He is establishing this deep, deep commitment to his God. He is dedicating his life to God. In the belief. Say it again, please. Yes, uh, I, I don't know if we want to use, you know, 21st century language and say this is where Jacob is saved. Yeah. I'm not sure we want to say that. I'm not sure we should say that. But what we're really saying is that Jacob here is committing himself to Yahweh. He's committing himself. To I believe what he's told me. I believe that. He is my God. Yahweh is my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth of it. That's part of the vow. Is that the first mention of the tent? Well, it isn't. We saw that in chapter 13 when Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek after he plunders the Ketelioner armies and all that stuff. And that's it's a great, I don't know where your question is going, but I'll anticipate it. There is no specific mention of the script in the scriptures of when that tense is is has an origin. It seems to have been a practice, but it is then made a formal part of what God insists upon in the Levitical code. They are to give a tenth. But it's really interesting when you start really studying that. They actually, depending on which part of the year it was or which in the cycle of, of, of the Jubilee and all those things that get a little complicated, there are some years where the Israelite who was being faithful was to give 22% of their income. But the standard is 10%. So here, did Jacob learn this? Or is he, I don't think he's just pulling that fraction out of the air. His grandfather did that. I find it hard to believe that that just wasn't part of the family tradition, that he wasn't taught this by Isaac. This is what Grandpa did. This is the situation with Grandpa. This was his life. I want to make sure you know that. But he's just, this. what we can say, if whether this is the point where he truly makes that faith commitment like Abraham did in chapter 15 when, verse 6, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The text doesn't say anything like this about Jacob. But at least we can say this is where Jacob becomes serious about his commitment to the Lord. So we, we perhaps presuppose that earlier, but here he's really serious about his commitment. Maybe this is where he's actually justified. So it's just, it's, it's a very, very, very important part of Jacob's life. And I, I want to refer you back to something I said when we started. 
Look up John chapter 1, verse 51. Jesus refers to this and says, I was a part of that. I was there. I was involved in that. And this, this is now, meaning, let's hear this event. This is now what's come to earth. I am here, not to go back up to heaven. I'm here to accomplish my work. What Jacob saw was just a precursor to what I am here to do now. I'm going to finish the plan of redemption. So, I mean, it's just it's exciting stuff, isn't it? I know we don't get excited about biblical truth, but it's an exciting. No, I'm just kidding. You do get excited about biblical truth. Now, I want to introduce chapter 29. Any questions real quickly? We have another minute. Yep. You want to take every second. Question here. Yeah, please. Uh, on, on the map, is 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 this Bethel, the Bethel right Good there? Good point. That, yes, it is. That, yes. That, that was then formerly Luz right there. That's and, correct. So he, he actually kind of headed north from Beersheba. He did. He then, absolutely then, headed. Okay. Yes, he's, he's following this. What he's doing, he's following the King's Highway, which is it's a very old road mm-hmm. system, but he's following it. It's right along, right along the mountains. That's exactly yes. Uh, thank you, John. Okay. You can see where Bethel is. It's just if you're in Beersheba, just keep going right along that line, right along the Jordan Valley, and you see Bethel. Lord, we are grateful for this time of study around the Word of God. Thank you for. What you taught us today as we study chapter 27 and as we, uh, or 28, excuse me, and as we spent significant time on the character of Jacob and all his duplicity and deceitfulness, and yet, Lord, you still made a promise and you still reviewed with him that you are going to keep that promise. Lord, your grace is all over that. Now, you are going to deal with Jacob's character and his temperament. You're going to break him of it. You're going to remake him and renew him. But you are a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And you even said to Jacob, I will be with you. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. I'll bring you back to your land. I am going to do everything I said. And Lord, for everyone around this table, including myself, it is so refreshing to be reminded that you keep your promises. And we need to just constantly be reminded of that because we live in a world and a culture where, quite honestly, people bend the truth, they cross their fingers, they don't keep their promises. It's hard to trust people. But the one thing is for certain, absolute certainty, is we can trust you. When you say something, you will keep that promise. They'll be with these men. I'm not going to see them for three weeks. So I pray your protective hand around them. I pray that you'll bless them, use them in ways that they can't even anticipate. And in all they do and say, as we always try to pray, help them to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen.